Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. We're pleased to have with us today attorneys Paul Jones and Arrestus Rusty Perez from the law firm of Lux, Santanello, Perez, Petrillo, Gold, and Jones in Florida. Paul Jones is the Orlando office managing partner and a Florida board-certified civil trial specialist with 11 years of trial litigation experience in both state and federal courts handling liability matters. He is a member of the firm's complex and high-exposure trial team. Rusty Perez is a partner with 15 years of trial litigation experience in state and federal courts. He is a member of the firm's complex trial team with extensive trial experience in several areas, including general liability, vehicular liability, premises liability, negligence security, construction liability, and construction liability matters. Rusty resides in the firm's Fort Lauderdale office. The firm has seven offices statewide in Florida and was recognized as a 2009 and 2008 go-to law firm for its handling of litigation matters. Congress has recently enacted new rules to enhance the enforcement of the Medicare Secondary Payer Law, which is commonly referred to as MSP. The new rules have created stringent reporting requirements and strengthened existing duties and obligations for liability insurance plans, private self-insured entities, group health plans, no-fault insurance plans, and WC plans. Effective July 1, 2009, the Medicare, Medicaid, and SHIP Extension Act of 2007 places an affirmative obligation on the part of liability insurers to determine if a claimant is entitled to Medicare benefits. If a claimant is entitled to such benefits, primary payers are required to timely notify Medicare if the claim is resolved through settlement, judgment, award, or other payment, irrespective of issues of negligence or comparative fault. Failing to provide timely notice could result in a penalty of up to $1,000 per day for each claim until compliance is met. Congress has recently authorized $35 million in appropriations to enforce this legislation between 2008 and 2010. And now Brendan Noonan will lead off with today's first question. Paul, what is Section 111 Mandatory Medicare Secondary Payer Reporting, and who does this apply to? Well, the, Brendan, the, the Medicare Secondary Payer Statute, you know, first of all, it's been around since 1980, and it's helpful for the listeners to understand that even then the statute was originally enacted for the purpose to, of ensuring that Medicare was just that, a secondary payer, so that if there were situations where third-party primary payers are primarily responsible for, to be liable for medical bills, that that would take place. Section 111 really put teeth or, or, or enforcement provisions in the Medicare secondary payer statute. And so in cases where you have a claimant or a plaintiff that is a Medicare beneficiary or who may well be in the near future and receives settlements or judgments or awards for payment from liability insurance, that those liability carriers, uh, including no-fault insurance and workers' compensation insurance companies, report. So the new law, not only does it require, of course, that the plaintiff and the claimant report to Medicare, but also requires that these carriers, including self-insurance, report as well. Uh, what are the current obligations and potential future obligations of primary payers, and what are the penalties for failing to report? Well, the current obligations, according to the Center for Medicare Services, who is really the entity that is helping with the reporting to Medicare and, and overseeing the enforcement here on this new law, they've come up with some data fields that need to be reported to their service so that it gets forwarded on to Medicare. 
Uh, and really, they're broken down in about four primary groups. First, of course, as you would imagine, would be information pertaining to the claimant or the plaintiff. That's as simple as name, you know, gender, birth date, but also includes the health insurance claim number, social security number. There's another information block about the injury itself, which would include the date of the accident, the venue, description of the injury. And then there's a, a third block pertaining to information about the carrier, about the attorneys involved. And then lastly, of course, as you would expect, information about the amount of the settlement. These fields are, are fairly in-depth currently, and so listeners, if they want a better breakdown of the information required by the CMS, they can always go on to the CMS's website, and that's found at www.cms.hhs.gov. In terms of future obligations, it's really helpful to maintain an open communication with the CMS because really it's up to them to decide what data fields are mandatory versus optional at this stage, and that can change in the future. So monitoring that website would be important. And then lastly, in terms of the penalties, it can be fairly extensive. Fines range up to $1,000 per day per claim if the carrier does not report. And keep in mind, too, that if the claimant or the plaintiff doesn't pay and, and there wasn't sufficient reporting here, that the carrier can have to pay back Medicare again, so essentially result in double payment of the settlement. Now, Rusty, uh, what is a Medicare set-aside? A Medicare set-aside, or MSA for short, is uh, generally it's a trust fund that's set up to pay future medical expenses for uh, Medicare-eligible beneficiaries. The trust fund is, is generally self-administered by the beneficiary or the injured party. On uh, rare occasions, depending on the size of the fund, or perhaps by agreement of the parties, or due to the incapacity of the beneficiary, a trustee may be appointed to manage the funds. The funds themselves have to be utilized or must be utilized only for the care and treatment of, of any injuries or conditions that may have been caused in the accident for which the beneficiary or the claimant has made a recovery. Now, the funds are generally accessed and spent only by the trustee as the trustee sees fit. And that's relatively interesting because they're basically uh, self-monitoring and making decisions about what types of medical conditions it is that the trust money should be spent on. But what needs to be kept in mind and, and what's important is is that Medicare may require at any given time an accounting for those monies that have been spent at that point. And generally that may happen at the very end when the trust has been exhausted and Medicare begins to have to pay for injuries that were ultimately caused by the, the accident a subject accident, and then Medicare goes back to look and see what it is that they have spent the money on and whether or not it was an appropriate expenditure. And if not, the Medicare may very well come back and ask for a refund from the beneficiary and potentially may come back against first-party payers as well. You know, there is one other option for the Medicare set-asides that I did not discuss, and that's sometimes they're set up as investments in annuities which pour over into the trust. That's just an investment vehicle where a lump sum is put in, and then the annuity pays into the trust over time, periodically. Uh, what are some of the recent court decisions and or interpretations in this area and the issues of consideration for primary payers? Well, one of the problems that we have, because this is a relatively new issue relative to the enforcement on uh, first-party payers, is, is that we're kind of in a fog of, of the unknown right now. 
in terms of how these different things are going to be interpreted. We don't have the benefit of any significant decisions. The most significant issues, though, I think that what is what we need to look at, the most significant issues that are not addressed by the MSPA are uh, the guidelines pursuant to which, for example, you have to establish an MSA trust. In workers' comp, for example, for years, they have been required to go ahead and set up MSA trusts, and there are two specific scenarios under which they have to set them up, and they're outlined very clearly. The first scenario is if a claimant is a Medicare beneficiary at the time of the settlement, that's the easy one, and the total settlement exceeds $25,000. The second scenario is where the claimant has a reasonable expectation of Medicare eligibility within 30 months and the settlement amount is greater than 250000 Now, the big issue that has to be considered by the primary payers is this issue of reasonable expectation of Medicare eligibility. For right now, the MSA or the CMS has not told us or the Act does not tell us, you know, what the specific criteria is in terms of setting up these MSA trusts. I would expect that for the time being, the Center for uh, Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, would probably follow the guidelines that have been set up in workers' comp or something similar. But as it stands right now, we don't know what those are exactly. The primary payers, uh, the insurance companies in in most cases, uh, may want to consider approval from CMS regarding whether or not an MSA trust is required when any settlement is made or verdict decided prior to releasing the funds to the plaintiff, at least until we have further clarification as to what the thresholds will be and how they will be enforced. You know, it's significant that the primary payers in any event relative to the new enforcement of these acts have to develop protocols to comply with the reporting. The most significant is probably to determine the Medicare eligibility. Paul has already talked a little bit about the reporting itself, but the determination of Medicare eligibility will really be the trap for the primary payers. The question is not simply whether the claimant is receiving Medicare benefits, but more importantly, whether he or she will be eligible or is eligible for Medicare payment. Right now, as it stands, we have four clear categories that we can guide ourselves by, and then everything else is unknown. One of the categories is a person who's reached age 65 and is entitled to receive Social Security, widows or railroad retirement benefits, those people are covered or eligible. The second is persons of any age who have received Social Security, widows or railroad disability benefits for at least 25 months. The third is persons with end-stage renal disease who require dialysis treatment or a kidney transplant, for example. And then the fourth are working-age persons over the age of 65 who may not be eligible or have not been eligible for either Social Security or railroad retirement benefits, but who have made purchase of Medicare coverage by monthly payment as an active employee of a company. Now, the problem is here determining really who is eligible, and that will fall in the end on the primary payer. At the very minimum, I think that uh, one of the issues that has to be you know, addressed by the primary payers is that uh, all settlement agreements, for example, should contain provisions that reflect that the parties have accounted for Medicare's interests during the negotiations and detail how the agreement you know, intends to achieve this, but that will not be foolproof. 
Again, if, for example, the primary payer pays out to the claimant and the claimant says in the, in the settlement agreement that they're going to go ahead and that they promise under the settlement agreement and have contracted under the settlement agreement to go ahead and make payment of any Medicare liens and they fail to do that, the primary payer is going to be on the hook for that money. Another interesting and, and practical issue for primary payers that needs to be considered is the requirement or is, is how the requirement of the MSA trust funds may affect settlement of cases. As you can well imagine, if a plaintiff is required to put aside a significant portion of the funds or the monies that they have recovered or that they will recover, settlements are going to become more expensive because that individual will want to put more money in their pocket. And I think it'll create situations where primary payers, uh, insurance companies, will have more difficulty in settling cases driving up, you know, potentially driving up anyway, either the cost of settlements or forcing many of these cases to trial. One of the issues that I think that is probably a burning issue for a lot of the primary payers is whether Medicaid is is covered under this statute and these requirements. And I think that the safe answer is probably not. There was a decision, not recently, but about 2006, that basically set out that the statute did not automatically impose a lien on tort settlement proceeds, that being the federal Medicaid law. And therefore, I don't think that it does not appear as though Medicaid will be covered under this. Now, one of the other burning issues may be what happens with those claims that existed prior to July 1st of 2009 and have not been settled yet. What do you do with those? I think that the safe thing to do for the primary payers is to go ahead and report. That'll be the safe thing to do. If they settled prior to July 1st of 2009, the statute itself does not have any retroactive language, and I don't believe it does not appear that the primary payer would be liable under the statute for reporting for those claims that had already been settled. And finally, I, I think that one of the, the burning issues that I think the primary payers will also face at times will be inevitable conflicts between the requirements of the statute uh, relative to, for example, setting up these MSA trusts and state laws. In Florida, we have a statute that, that tells us that uh, when we settle a case, we have 20 days to go ahead and make payment of the settlement funds. Well, under the, the constructs of the requirements or the, these new requirements, as you can well imagine, this is probably going to take a lot longer than 20 days to effectuate settlements. I would recommend to all of the primary payers, therefore, that they negotiate and include language in the settlement documents that, in fact, would protect them from any state requirements, any state statutory requirements or federal requirements relative to the timeliness of the payment of any settlements. Okay, Paul, what are some of the ambiguities with SB 2499, and what are your suggestions for MSP compliance and large liability settlements? John, Rusty uh, touched on two of the big ones, the Medicare eligibility and the timing or when a MSA trust is required. But there's even a couple other more elementary parts of the statute that's fairly ambiguous. One is what to include in the report. And if you read the law, literally, it just says that enough information to identify the claimant and the settlement. So because of the broad language of the statute itself, it's, it's left it over to the CMS to determine what those reporting requirements are. 
Another ambiguity here is when to report. The easy part of the statute to understand is naturally when there's a settlement, but there's a part of the statute that requires that when a primary payer has assumed what they call, quote, ongoing responsibility for medical payments, unquote, then that also triggers the reporting requirements. So there's some very obvious ambiguity with when exactly does that happen when ongoing responsibility for medical payments kick in. As you can imagine, many times carriers may, when a claim comes in, consider paying for medical services, maybe some physical therapy, but they're certainly not necessarily writing, uh, signing up for the paying for an ongoing undetermined period of time for this particular person's injuries. So clearly there's a gray area there and certainly lends some difficulty for primary payers to make the decisions when that kicks in. With regard to these large liability cases, certainly you want to take extra precaution, carers do, in protecting themselves. Mainly one of the pitfalls that we talked about earlier would be the risk of having to pay those large sums all over again if indeed the claimant or the claimant's attorney doesn't reimburse and pay the Medicare. One thought would be to go ahead and just issue a third-party check directly to the CMS. Another, of course, Rusty touched on is, is including some language in the release where the claimant and the claimant's counsel would indemnify the defendant for a failure to pay Medicare. One important point to make here would be it would be very helpful to get the claimant's attorney to sign on to such an indemnity agreement to give it a little bit more bite to it, if you will, and protection on the part of the primary payer. And when discussing these things, it would be very important to, of course, include these early on in the settlement negotiations, nothing that you would want to spring on a claimant or a plaintiff's attorney at the last minute, something that you would want to prepare the language ahead of time and submit it along with your offer so that they go in understanding with their eyes wide open as to what the kind of safeguards that you want in the settlement to protect from having this double payment risk. Uh, Rusty, what future legislative changes and trends do you anticipate developing in this area? Well, you know, based on the ambiguities that we find ourselves facing. I would certainly expect to see some sort of a matrix or guideline that will be established by the legislature indicating exactly, for example, when MSA trusts need to be established. I think that the legislature will likely define Medicare eligibility if case law does not interpret it in such a way that those of us that practice in the general liability side of the law as opposed to, for example, the workers' comp side of the law are able to, in fact, understand and comply with the reporting requirements and the setting up of MSA trusts based on eligibility. There is a chance, I truly believe, that the courts may find that the law could be unconstitutional because of the vagueness of the law and the enforceability. It's difficult, if not impossible, to comply with because they have not outlined Congress has not outlined specifically many of the items that are required in order to comply with the law. I also believe that there's going to be a cottage industry or law practice, if you will, that's going to develop around the implementation of the law and violation of the same. And that will add to litigation in this area. And finally, I definitely believe that any settlements, any settlement negotiations, are going to take much longer to process. And I think that, unfortunately, what I think the primary payers will see 
is is that in those cases where, for example, MSA trusts need to be set up and those monies are being pulled out of the pool of money that the plaintiff or the claimant is putting in their pocket, that it's going to require more money to settle these cases because the plaintiff will not be satisfied with the amount of money that they will put into their pocket at the onset of the closing of the case or the, the settlement. And in those cases where they can't be settled for the same reason, then we're just going to see cases that generally could have been settled going to trial because a plaintiff will not accept the monies that they will be receiving following, for example, the setting up of the MSA trust. Okay, thank you very much for joining us today, Paul and Rusty. You're very welcome. Uh, that was Paul Jones and Arrestus Rusty Perez from the law firm of Lux Santanello Perez Petrillo Gold and Jones in Florida. Special thanks to Brendan Noonan from our communications team and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message. Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 